Welcome to Kent Hunter's Prescriptions from a Church Doctor, presented by Church Doctor Ministries. This is Kent Hunter, Church Doctor Ministries. I am delighted to be with you as we continue our episodes and the teaching on is Christianity an institution, a program, or a movement? By now, of course, you know that it's a movement. And the last episode, in episode four, we talked about what is the power of the movement. And what we learned is that it's really reigniting and building the culture, the biblical culture in the church. The values, the beliefs, the attitudes, the priorities, the worldviews. Those are all woven together like a helix of DNA. And that DNA, the more we grow in those elements of the DNA, that we become more like Christ, as the Bible says. And that is what leads to what we call a major breakthrough. That's what happens when there is a breakthrough atmosphere, that environment. And so this takes time to develop in a church. So in episode five today, we begin by talking about the movement imprint. I want to begin with the end in mind. You see, a real movement isn't just piddling along with a little growth. A real movement has what they call exponential growth. It is, in mathematical terms, a geometric progression. Now, depending on how much math you've had, and I don't know much, but one of the best ways that I can describe this is a story I told about folding a piece of paper. Let's say you take an ordinary piece of paper, eight and a half by 11, and you fold it over once, and then you fold over the same piece of paper again, and then you fold it again and again. How tall do you think that little thin sheet of paper would be folded 50 times. Would it be two feet tall? Would it be six feet tall? Maybe as high as a refrigerator? Would it reach the ceiling? If you fold over a piece of paper as thin as it is 50 times, how tall will it be? It will reach from here to the sun. And if you folded it over one more time, it would reach from here to the sun and back again. This is the power of geometric progression. This is the power of the Christian movement. Not doing church business as usual, but this is what happens in a Christian movement. It happened in the New Testament. In the Mediterranean world, within a century, it's almost indescribable the number of churches and the number of people in the number of countries around the Mediterranean world. I mean, without the technology and the transportation we have today, it is miraculous. It is miraculous because Jesus designed it as a geometric progression. But if your church is expecting your pastor and the staff to reach the world for Christ, and you think your main job is only washing dishes in the kitchen or only coming to hear the sermon or maybe attending a Bible class, if you have not been discipled to reach the people in your social networks who don't know Christ, then you and the people in your church could never possibly be part of a revival. I've taught pastors 
in numerous revivals around the world. I'll just pick one from Nigeria. When they have a conference, these people go like 10 hours a day, unair-conditioned facilities, jammed in, hotter than blazes, I mean literally 115 degrees inside, no air conditioning. Several times a day, the electricity goes off because that's what happens in Africa in many places. So the lights go out, the microphone doesn't work. There are people literally standing in the sun all day, leaning in the windows because there's no room inside. And this is where there's a revival going on. The reason I was there is because they were teaching pastors in a 10-day crash course because the churches were springing up so rapidly. That can happen in your community, in your state, in your region, in your country, because God wants it to happen. It can happen where literally the movement is out of control. People cannot point and say, well, I know how that person came into church because they've lost control of it. They have no idea. How did that person even know about Christ? Pastor doesn't know that person. No one in the church knows that person. But someone who visited the church, and once you get into the thousands of people, you don't know them all, has already started to disciple another person, and that person's already discipling another person, and it just explodes. The elements of a movement. I want to talk about several elements of a movement. The first one we've already talked about. It's key and it's basic, changing the atmosphere. And I want to talk about it in several ways. Number one, the atmosphere has to be around relationships. Now, we do that pretty good among the members, but we don't really do that, understanding that, in the mission of the church, that it's relationship-centered. Now, we talked about that before in the previous episode, but we want to recall that. But it's very important, and I want to go into it deeper now. It is called relational influence. It is what Jesus did with the disciples. I don't know how you would start the greatest movement in the history of the planet. Jesus started with 12 guys. Why didn't he start with more? Because you can't relationally disciple more than that. And it seems like it would take forever, but here's the mystery of geometric progression. If you pour your life into the few rather than the many, and the few pour their lives into the few rather than the many, and they disciple them. And if they continually disciple the few rather than looking at crowds, pretty soon it has grown so much, so fast. This is exactly the way God made the world. How many kernels of corn does it take to plant and grow a corn stalk? Answer, one. How many ears of corn are there on a corn stalk? Well, that varies depending on the fertilizer, the soil, the weather, and a few other things. But always one, if there's any health at all to the crop. And most often two. And quite often three. Again, depending on the health of the environment. Okay. How many kernels of corn on a cob of corn that could, when they become mature, be seeds to start another stalk? Well, the ratio per corn cob depends on the size of the corn cob, but is somewhere around over 350. So one produces 
350. If it has two ears, that's 700. Now, if those 700 were all planted, how many would that multiply in terms of seeds? Now you're beginning to see what geometric progression is all about. This is not an oddity. This is the way God intended the church to be. This is the church that Jesus built. It is what the disciples did with others. It's all about relationships and discipling. Number two, the movement leader influences by asking questions. You know, in our world, we are really good at preaching and teaching to people. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the most powerful thing you can do, particularly with a young Christian or a non-Christian, is ask a question. There's terminology for this, not from the Bible, but from social scientists today. It's called interrogative influence. You can lead people to learn at a deeper level by asking them first. So instead of getting worried about a bunch of Bible passages you can't remember and talk to your friend at work that you have an opportunity to witness to, just ask some questions. Look at what Jesus did with the disciples. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Jesus told this story, just a story. There was a guy going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and a bunch of people beat him up, took all his wealth, left him there for dead. A few people came by. One of them was a preacher, but he didn't have time. He was too busy thinking about his church. Another guy came by. He was a church member, but he didn't want to get involved. Then a guy, a good Samaritan, Jesus' tongue-in-cheek, used a person that Jews didn't get along with. Another culture, the Samaritans. And he was a good guy. And he helped the guy, got him help, took care of him. So then after telling that story... We'll talk about the power of story in a minute. Jesus did the question thing. Who do you think was neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? That all came because the question came to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? You're supposed to love your neighbor like yourself? Well, who would you say is my neighbor? Jesus turned it right around by asking a question. Do you remember when Jesus said to the disciples, all right, guys, look, I don't know whether you have this for sure or not, but I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah, and I don't want you to forget it. It's not the way it went down. You know the story. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? His disciples kind of him and hawed around. Well, you know, I don't know, maybe Elijah, maybe John the Baptist come back from the dead. I, you know, whatever. Then Jesus put it to him. Another question. Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, You're the Son of the living God, the Christ, the Anointed One. Asking questions work better than force-feeding information. So many people don't do evangelism because they think it's preaching to unchurched people. Well, let's say you want to lead, that is, influence people to become more sensitive to witnessing to their social networks. What would the questions be that you'd ask? That leads to something we've already touched on briefly, and that is the power of story. Stories have enormous power to teach. 
and to share really complicated things like who's God, what does he mean to people, that kind of stuff. Now, movements, and we're back to the church as a movement, movements have three stories. This is really important to know. The first one is my personal story. That is, what has God done in my life? Then there's our story. Oh, man, I'd love to tell you. You got to see what's happening at our church. It's just unbelievable. I think we have a baptism every single week. It's just amazing. We've got new people coming to Christ. It, it is just incredible. And our worship is just every month getting more impactful. That's our story. That's the second part of the story. My story, our story. And the third one is the story of now. In the kingdom culture, when it clashes with our secular nation, the challenge is, what action does that require now? If someone says they're interested in Christianity, instead of inviting them to church and they haven't asked about your church, but if they show interest in God and you share your story, let's say just briefly because it comes up at work, what's the action? What's the story of now? What's the next step of kingdom culture? Hey, Joe, we got to get back to work, but would you like to have lunch together tomorrow? I'll buy you lunch. We can talk about it some more. Would you like to do that? That's an action. You see, all movements tell stories. The greatest movements tell stories. So Jesus taught by telling stories. He modeled it. We call them parables, but they're stories. So Christians should share with one another, what is God doing in my life? When I learned this dynamic, I was still a pastor of a growing church, and I taught a Sunday morning Bible class, and it grew and grew from, you know, a handful of people. They'd never really had more than 12 people in a Bible class in their 150 years of history, according to their records. But here we were, now we had maybe 50, 60 people, and I taught this Bible class between the two worship services, and it kept growing. One day I came to learn about this importance of sharing your God stories. And so I decided I was going to change the culture of our church. I did not have a lecture in Bible class about sharing stories. I just came to class one day and said, now I know we normally start with a prayer and we take prayer requests, then we have a prayer, and then we have the lesson. But before we do that, I'd just like to ask is, is there anyone here who would like to share what God has done in your life this last week? And as I looked out at the people, you might guess, nothing happened. I said, okay, let's pray. Any prayer requests? Next week. Didn't say a word. Just came to teach Bible class. Anybody want to share what God's doing or has been doing in your life this last week since we were here last week for Bible class? Nobody. It took three or four weeks, and finally... Some little old lady got the idea, so he's going to do this every week. And so she thought about it during the week, and she did have something to share. And she sheepishly raised her hand, and without any real finesse, kind of in broken words and sentences, shared what God had done in her life. And I was watching the group. When people share what God is doing in their lives, no matter what they share, no matter how eloquent or not eloquent they are, 
they basically tell people God is alive and well and working among us. And that is a kick of adrenaline, spiritual adrenaline. So let's talk about evangelism. Some people have the gift of evangelist, and they should go do hardcore evangelism. And they'll be able to quote scripture and do all that stuff because they're like spiritual pediatricians. They have the gift to know when somebody's about ready to be born again. But that's a very small percentage of people in most churches. Most of us, including myself, don't have the gift of evangelists. And nowhere did Jesus say everybody should do evangelism or have the gift of evangelists. But what he did say to everybody is, you shall be my witnesses. Well, you know what a witness is. I was there. I saw it. It happened to me. Well, this is the best tool. If you can build a culture in your church of people sharing every time any small group meets, not in the big church worship, but everywhere else, anytime you get together, if people would share, and you don't have to tell them why you're doing it, because it's powerful. And they'll catch on. It'll become a holy habit. It'll become part of their Christian life. And then when they meet someone where they want to reach them for Christianity and tell them about Jesus, don't think about an outline or Bible passages. Most people that don't know the Lord don't know the Bible and don't really want to hear that stuff anyway. All you have to do is think about in your life some parallel story, if there is one, that is close to what challenges the person is sharing with you and learn to tell your God stories and don't practice it. The more honest and genuine it is, the better. Doesn't matter if you stutter or stumble, just share it from your heart and God will do the rest. Number four, movements require risk-taking. It is beneficial to be out of your comfort zone. Ever hear somebody say, I was on a mission trip. Oh yeah, really, where'd you go? Oh, in some jungle in South America, oh yeah? Were there bugs? Oh man, they were everywhere. Was it hot? Oh, it was terribly hot, day and night. Just sweat all the time. What kind of food did you eat? Was there a McDonald's there? Oh no, man, nothing like that. Beans and rice, all the time, beans and rice. Wow, would you do it again? Oh, absolutely, it was the most wonderful experience of my life. Are you kidding me? Yeah, you know why? Because God does something great when people are willing to do it, and it requires faith because it's risk-taking. The Holy Spirit works most effectively in us when we are off balance, without conveniences, and beyond our normal lives. So if an unchurched person puts you on the spot, oh, God's going to do a great thing if you're willing to take a risk. Number five, movements are fueled by hopelessness. They require courage. Courage comes from spiritual stories. You know, Hebrews 11, all the great saints of the Old Testament, the Old Testament Hall of Fame, all those people that did wild things like Noah who built a boat on land and Abraham who took off going to a place he had no clue where he was going, no compass, because he trusted God. They're there for a reason. They're stories to tell you to risk. Oh man, I wish more churches were willing to risk. Most secular people are willing to risk when it comes to purchasing a mortgage than Christians are in the way they run the church. Courage comes from the rediscovery of kingdom culture, values, beliefs, attitudes, priorities, and worldviews. Number six, movements have hands-on involvement. Experience usually requires involvement, not just someone preaching or teaching you. You don't disciple the crowd. 
as Christians experience, they share emotional content. And that's valuable because it moves people. And that's movement. Number seven, movements require leaders who help people deal with fear. You ever hear about the story of David and Goliath? I'll tell you what, there's no question Goliath is more likely to win. But guess what? Sometimes David does because God is in it. Movements require leaders help people get over the fear. And number eight, those involved in movements have a calling. They're on a mission from God. A calling is not the same as a church membership or doing a program, not limited to congregational goals, but it's used by God to change the world, the nation, the community, the family next door, the woman at work, and the guy at the gym. Number nine, a spiritual movement does not compete with government. It's not identified as against government. It's apolitical. As a collection of those with holy discontent. That's what a spiritual movement is. The object is not a revolution, but a transformation, like Romans 12. A movement is a parallel activity to government, drawing others, helping them find courage, solidarity, and hope. Oh my, the elements of a movement. If you can take those into your heart, you can take those to eternity. And you can take people with you because you're a man and a woman on a movement. The next time we meet in session six, we're going to talk more about the movement of multiplication. God bless you. Isn't God great? You have been listening to Kent Hunter's Prescriptions from a Church Doctor presented by Church Doctor Ministries. If you've liked this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to hear future episodes check out Kent Hunter's new book, Who Broke My Church? Seven Proven Strategies for Renewal and Revival, available now wherever books are sold.